go. We got a new handout over here. We finally made it through Israel, so we are moving on this morning. But before we move on, I thought it'd be a good time to go back and do a little bit of a review, because we've come a long way in this systematic theology class. So going back, think back, I guess nearly a year or so, to bibliology. Can anybody articulate the difference between inspiration and revelation? Inspiration and revelation. What do those words mean? Well, inspiration would be something you're inspired by, probably like more immediate or present, I guess, where... Revelation. Revelation. Yes. Uh, things that are to come. Is it uh, revelation would be... Um, it could be immediate, but it's like a revelation, something received, yes, particularly by from God. So... Clear that up for me. Are, are you and I inspired? No. Yes. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jerry's got something for us. <laughs> Maybe, right? Inspired. What's that? The Bible's inspired. The Bible is inspired. Yes. Yeah. Jerry? It contains revelation. <laughs> the what? The Bible. The simple version from me is that revelation is God revealing truth to us through a means such as inspiration where he feels he reveals that how he reveals it to okay good I feel stronger that way <laughs> <laughs> good to hear Rex so the the apostles and the prophets they were inspired to write weren't they uh, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as he spoke through them and we have been given the revelation of God we have special revelation and general revelation. How do those two differ? Special versus general revelation. General revelation, all we see and what's going on. And special revelation. Special revelation. Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, so we have, yeah, general revelation, the creation, right? Psalm 19, 119, and uh, Romans 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and we are without excuse because all creation is crying out um, and then special revelation given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Bible right we have the the saving words of Christ so we can't go out and look at a mountain and have a, a saving redeeming relationship with with God we're not going to be adopted by looking at a tree or a river or a lake but by looking at those things we can see that there is a God and again we are accountable we are without excuse all right what about um, God's immutable characteristics. Remember, immutable means they are only His. He doesn't share them with us. Omniscient. Yeah, Omniscient. He is. All the omnis, right? All the omnis. So He is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is completely 100% of those things. What? Did you say something? Yeah, omnipresent. Any other one? He's all-holy. He's all-righteous. Yeah, all of his attributes, he contains 100% of. So he's not less of one or more of another. He is 100% uh, holy uh, wrathful, right? So his wrath and his holiness aren't in contradiction with each other. Uh, his immutability, the fact that he doesn't change, that isn't in conflict with his grace. Or his wrath and his love. Yeah. And... The, the characteristic, the attribute that really 
uh, fleshes that out is his simplicity, that there is one God, right? Um, he's not complex in the sense that he is one plus two plus three plus four, but he is one God, and yet he is a totality of all of his attributes. And then we already mentioned a, a couple of his communicable attributes, the ones that he shares with us. Any other communicable attributes we can highlight? We talked about grace, right? So God is gracious and absolutely gracious, but he shares his grace with us, especially with his believers. He's called us to show grace to the world, right? And then love, mercy, uh, wisdom. These are things that he, he is and he has and he shares them with us. And so we can uh, reflect that because we are made in the image of God. All right, what about the Trinity? When we were going through the Trinity, again, months and months ago, we were highlighting three important aspects of the Trinity that are good to remember and to be able to tell other people to articulate what it means, um, what the Trinity means. What are those three words or three aspects of the Trinity? Singularity. Singularity. Good. There is one God, right? Anyone else? All right. Equality. Singularity, equality, and? No. <laughs> has an I in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Plurality. Plurality. All right. So one God, singularity, three persons, plurality, and equality, that they are all equal. Again, one isn't above the other, right? Good. Um, what about the deity of Christ? Where can we read about the deity of Christ? If somebody were walking here today and question the fact that Jesus is God, what scripture could you point them to? John 1. John 1, 1. Good. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. That's good. All of them highlight and speak to the deity of Christ. Do you have something, Ellie? Where is the Shema that says he is one? That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's where we get that foundation for singularity. Um, and the, the Jews in the Old Testament, just like we got done going through with Israel, they didn't really have a, an understanding of the, the Trinity, that plurality aspect of God, um, that there are three persons. But that has been revealed throughout progressive revelation. So we talked about general and special, but also progressive revelation, that as time goes on, uh, God is revealing more and more of himself to, to us throughout history. All right. Can we also say um, for his deity, we have Revelation 1, what is called? The Almighty. The, Almighty, the, the, the first and the last. Isaiah, Isaiah, Emmanuel. And lots of uh, singularity passages in Isaiah 2, that I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, I, I don't even know of any other God. Um, I've talked to a few people, that's caught them off guard. Um, well, where does it say that, that God doesn't know of any other God? Well, it's Isaiah. So, <laughs> yeah, those chapters 40 to 44 are precious. He also says, I, I am or will be your Savior, and there is no other. Yep. Yeah, it's 43, 10, and 11, I think. Good. So you guys are remembering. That's, that's good. I, 
I worry and I wonder because I forget myself. And again, it's been months since we've talked about these things. So it's good to go back. I am your Savior. There is no other. A lot of times I'll start off with, do you think Jesus is your Savior? With people that don't think Jesus is God. Is Jesus your Savior? Yeah. God says he is your Savior. Yeah. The only one. He alone Absolutely. All right. Um, what about the, the hypostatic union? That's a big word. <laughs> what is a hypostatic union? I used to know. <laughs> wonder who that was. Does <laughs> that have to do with currents? <laughs> uh, probably not. ACDC, yeah. Hypostatic union is the human language to explain that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. All right, good. So, just like uh, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father are all equal, um, Jesus in his humanity and his deity are equal. One doesn't sacrifice um, in favor of the other. So, and we'll touch on that a little bit in our lesson today. Uh, what about the deity of the Holy Spirit? Where could we go to defend that? Attaboy, all right, Acts 5, that was a good one. Yeah, that's where uh, they're talking to Ananias and Sapphira and said, you haven't lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to, or you haven't lied to man, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't lied to man, you've lied to God. So equating the Holy Spirit with God. And then, yeah, it can't lie to a force, right? Uh, he is a person, also a good reminder. And then Matthew 12, 31 and 32, another good reference for the, uh, deity of the Holy Spirit, where it says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but any blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And once again, you can't blaspheme something, but you can blaspheme a person. Uh, it's Matthew 12, 31, 32. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, um, recognizing Him as God. Uh, what, what chapters do we go to for teaching on the Holy Spirit? There are three chapters, three subsequent chapters that really highlight teaching on the Holy Spirit. What are they? Acts 2. Yeah, that's a good one. Yep. Acts 5 is... Uh, those are good ones. That's not what I was thinking of. I'm talking about three John chapters. 17. What's that? John 17. John 17 is the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father. And yeah, you can see... Uh, the Holy Spirit mentioned in there, but right, not the three, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was right before that, John, John 14, 15, and 16. Uh, those are great passages to go to for teaching on the Holy Spirit. Talks about the comforter, 14, 15, 16. Yep. Acts two kind of just shows what he does and doesn't really teach on it. Yeah, well, that's a good good verse to know, or a good chapter to know, um, especially in relation. Yes. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Yep. Yeah. That's another good one for his deity. Good. Those are good things. And then within Romans, or not Romans, John 14, 15, and 16, uh, the verses that end with 6. I don't know if you guys think that same way. That's how I think. But John 14, 6, right? It's a popular verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and then 14, 16, 14, 26, 15, 26. 
those all speak to the Holy Spirit in a very helpful way. And I should probably open up there and read them for you since I'm referencing them. So 14.16 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper and he will be that he may be with you forever. 14.26 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And 15.26, I think. Yes, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And we'll touch on that a little bit today too. So, yes, um, 14, 15, 16, and then verses that end in 6 are helpful. Um, let's see, I don't know how much for review I want to do this morning, but um, what are the, the three stages of, I don't know if stages is the right word, uh, three different, yeah, we'll go with stages, I guess, for now, of salvation. So the first being justification. Again, stages is not the right word. I'm just having a hard time right now. All right. So we were first justified. We were declared righteous. Then we grow in Christ. And then one day we are rescued from the actual presence of our sin when we are made like Christ. Uh, again, Romans 8. Um, what's a better word than stages? All right. Aspects. Aspects. Something. Because you have to have all three of them. Yeah, you can't have, you can't be justified without being sanctified, right? It will follow. And it's part of your sanctification as well. It's another one of those paradoxes because it's all instantaneous, but it's progressive. Except for glorification. But yes. We are glorified and just, Yes. And yes. Justification. Yeah. Again, Romans 8, right? We have been glorified. And but. Justification. <laughs> but. Yes. <laughs> Qualifications? Implications. There we go. All right. And when did the church start? (laughs) (laughs) Attaboy, Rex. Pentecost, you just mentioned that. Oh, Remember? Yeah. Acts 2. Yeah. You're like, why are you looking at me, Tyler? <laughs> Acts 2. Uh, is the church Israel? No. Is Israel the church? No. Is Israel God's called out people? Yes. All right. Good. All right. We're getting it. All right. That was more recent. It was more recent. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier. I'm not sure if we're actually going to get to universal and local today, but... It's a possibility. We might. All right. Let's jump into our study with this quote by MacArthur and Mayhew. Uh, The church exists to display the wisdom and mercy of God in this age. That is the church age, like we talked about recently, the age of the Gentiles. By proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. So that sinners from every ethnic background might be rescued from the domain of darkness and ushered into the kingdom of God. And so that unbelieving Israel might be provoked to jealousy and repentance. So that's just kind of a review of what we've already been talking about. And before we jump in, and now that I'm done quizzing you, are there any general thoughts or questions that you guys might have? It's your chance to quiz me, I suppose. All right, you guys are much more gracious than I am. This part of that statement has to work for everything. They haven't well, been provoked to jealousy and repentance yet. 
Yes, not quite. It may be but up here, this statement, so that sinners from every ethnic background might be rescued from the domain of darkness, right? They have, in part, uh, participated in that. But as you mentioned, as a whole, the whole nation has not been provoked to jealousy and repentance as of yet. But we know from the truth of Scripture and the faithfulness of God that that will happen. Um, all right. Let's see. <laughs> All right. Ignatius from 107 AD. Um, he was writing to the Smyrnans and he said, Whatever or wherever the bishop appears, there let the people be, as wherever Jesus Christ is, there the Catholic Church. Um, and that Catholic should be lowercase. We've talked about recently the difference between the Catholic as in Holy Roman Catholic and then Catholic as in. What does that word mean? Universal. Good. So, talking about the universal church, what do we think about that statement there? How do you guys understand that? I don't have a problem with the bishop part, but well, but the point is, wherever wherever the leadership is, the people should be. Well, if it said elder or deacon. Well, and it is. That is, it's the, we have used. They have gotten that. It has become more um, interchangeable. Specifically defined back then, it was a general. It was that's the, that's a Latin word, which means the overseer. Wherever the overseer is, the people should be gathering around him. And of course, certainly wherever Jesus is, hmm. there there is the church, because he's in every believer. All right. It's not as bad as we think it to be now. It's not the capital V bishop, is what you're yeah, saying. Because that's long before, yes, exactly. That's long before the ugly head was raised. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was very early in church history. Uh, he was uh, contemporary with John, a disciple yeah. of John. So yeah. that was a long time ago. Um, and as we'll, we'll see, there will be different people that have different understandings of quotes similar to this. And that's really going to cause a division within uh, the universal church, right? Um, who is the head of the church? Christ. Christ, right? Ephesians, what is that, 4.15? We are to grow up into him who is a head, even Christ. Um, yeah, somewhere in there. First Corinthians. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that understanding of who the head of the church is is going to change throughout history. Uh, the church Catholic. Catholic comes from Catholicos, meaning whole, complete, or universal. It appears as though the early church used this word to speak of the collective of God's people around the world. So again, this is the, the universal church, the invisible church. Um, when we talk about the church Catholic, it doesn't mean what you and I might immediately think when we hear that word. The church has been through very much, or been through much over the last two millennia. This is a very, very curtailed history. So, uh, yeah, 2,000 years, that's a long time. Um, we're gonna look at a brief history. We got a little diagram there on your page, but it's gonna be brief, so keep that in mind. Um, also, we have, I just pointed somebody to this week, our old, series on church history. It's just 16 lessons. It's on our website. So if you guys want to check that out, it's still floating around and 
that will get you much more into detail on this. So 30 to 33 AD, most people say 33 AD is when we have the, the death of Christ. <clears throat> and then after that, in the book of Acts, we read about the apostles and the early church. And so most of that information we get, not just from the book of Acts, but from the New Testament as a whole, the book of Acts just outlines the history of the early church. And then we see here that there are extra biblical traditions and false doctrines that sneak into the church. We are warned about that all throughout, right? Uh, Acts 2028, 1 Timothy, yeah, to, to be on guard, to watch out that false teachers will arise among you and they will seek for themselves people that will, they'll be able to turn away, they'll be able to tickle their ears and pervert. Um, and so as that happens, uh, the church splits, it fractures. In 312 AD, that's a, a big year because that's when Constantine comes on the scene. So up until Constantine, the church was undergoing massive persecution. They were constantly running, hiding from their lives, being killed. Um, we're going through First Peter on Wednesdays, right? And that talks about the, uh, the believers who are scattered throughout Galatia, Pontius, all these different areas because of the, the Roman persecution. Uh, and Rome is still alive and strong at this point. But Constantine comes on the scene and he um, has an experience that leads him to embrace Christianity. Um, whether or not he was truly a Christian is up for debate, but he is very sympathetic towards Christianity nonetheless. And then in 325 AD was the first council, the council at Nicaea. 325 AD is the first council. Um, there are seven major councils throughout the first uh, millennia or so of the church. And this is the first one where they're talking about the, the person of Christ, who Christ is. The whole first six councils are talking about the person of Christ, but this is the one that gets it going, gets it started off um, with Arius, where we get the term Arianism. We talked about that a little bit when we were going through Christology. Um, so 325 AD. Um, 440 AD, Leo comes on the scene. Uh, Leo kind of switches things up a little bit because he um, he kind of takes back more control for the church. And so up before Leo came on the scene, uh, the, the emperor was kind of in control. He was the one calling the shots, um, like geopolitically, religiously. The, the emperor is the one. So Constantine was the emperor, and he was the one who called for this council at Nicaea. Um, and Leo comes on the scene, and he, he switches things up. He's the one who's going to start uh, changing things a, a little bit. And did he invent the hat? Did he invent the hat? <laughs> oh. The big pointy hat. I don't know if he invented the big pointy hat. But um, he definitely took back more power for the Pope than the other previous Popes, for sure. Um, <laughs> whether or not he wore a hat, I'm not sure. We'll talk about down here a little bit in 1054 that um, that's when that kind of stuff started to be introduced a lot more. But Leo's the one who called for the, the Council of um, 
Chalcedon in 451 AD. That's uh, the second, well, not the second, that's the fourth council. So there's another one in 381, um, one in 431, uh, the Council of Ephesus, and then this one is a fourth council in 451, the Council of Chalcedon. And I had on my phone at one point the Chalcedonian Creed, but I never printed it out like I had meant to. But the purpose of the the Council of Chalcedon was to talk about the, again, they're all talking about the person of Christ, but this is where we get the, the hypostatic union out of the Council of Chalcedon. Um, what is a hypostatic union again? Fully man and fully God. And so. Yeah, so he, he took back more power and more authority than he probably should have, uh, but he used that for, for good as far as we, we know. So that was good, but that um, led down this, this path. He set a precedent for upcoming popes that would take that, that power and control and authority, and they wouldn't use it in the same way that he used it. Uh, let's see. All right, so this guy, Eutychus here, um, he wanted to blend together the, the natures of Christ. So in three, I think it was, no, it was a council before this. It was either the second or third council, but I think it was the one before this in 431, uh, the Council of Ephesus, where uh, Nestorius came on the scene. Nestorius wanted to separate the two natures of Christ. So uh, you had the, the person almost of the human person of Christ and then the divine person of Christ. And so he taught almost a schizophrenic Jesus. Um, and his views got denounced at one of those councils. Again, I'm not recalling which one. I think it was a third. Uh, and then Eutychus comes on the scene and he kind of does the opposite. He wants to blend the natures. Um, so put the the deity of Christ within the, the humanity of Christ, that the two are, um, there's just one nature rather than two natures um, of Christ. One person with one nature. Whereas at the Council of Chalcedon, they come up with the articulation that there is one person and yet two natures. Any thoughts or questions on that so far? Can you expound on the danger of blending the natures? Um, yeah, you would either um, diminish his humanity or his deity. If he's not fully God, then he is not powerful enough to save. He doesn't have the right to step in and save. And if he's not man, then he's not able to bridge that gap. He's not able to um, fully relate with us, right? He's our, our great high priest who can sympathize with us in all things, yet without sin. Um, and that is biblical. So beyond like being able to logically say why that would be bad, uh, that goes against what scripture says. And so um, we talked about recently the the Gnostics and how the Gnostics had this messed up view of the the body, of what's material and what's immaterial. And they looked at anything as material as sinful and wicked and anything that was immaterial as good and, and holy. And this started to really mess up the church. And so 
Um, there were a couple of different paths you could go down with this. If you thought that the body was absolutely sinful and the spirit was good, then you could find yourself being in a body and can say, okay, well, obviously I'm flesh and this is where God wants me. So I'm just going to live it up. I'm going to be as sinful as I want and just embrace a licentious lifestyle. Or you could realize, okay, well, I am, uh, I'm not just my, my physical makeup and God doesn't embrace the body. The body is evil, bad, right? In their view, their Gnostic view. And so I'm going to denounce the body. And this leads down a road to asceticism, where you are not feeding yourself, you're not taking care of yourself, you are um, crawling up and living on some pole because you're thinking that this is somehow pleasing to God. It's and this, yeah. And so this mindset entered into uh, the, the church, a Christian church, and uh, people started to apply that to, to Jesus and say, well, maybe he didn't have a body. Maybe he wasn't fully human. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of those problems will arise when, when you start to be influenced by outside people like that. Any other thoughts or questions? All right. So generally, we could say that the visible church through those years was still working hard to maintain the, the truth of the Bible and its teachings about, about, about Christianity. Generally speaking, it wasn't. That's what that sounds like. You just hear a lot of people say that you know, Constantine was was the worst thing that happened, and that everything went downhill from there. But there was obviously still a lot of uh-huh. integrity in the in the local church leaderships around the Mediterranean there uh-huh. through that. And his his motives weren't completely pure. So he was emperor and he wanted everybody under him. He had um, called for a, a national uh, Christianization of, of Rome, right? So uh, Rome became officially Christian and there were uh, sects that were rising up and they had different teachings about who Christ was and he didn't want it to influence his empire negatively. So Arius rose up um, and he was teaching um, that <coughs> He was misapplying uh, what we were talking about, about the, the hypotheticing and the nature of Christ. And then uh, Alexander of Alexandria and um, Athanasius, they came up to, to combat him. And he really didn't care about the outcome. He just wanted there to be unity within the church, um, which came about at the Council of Nicaea. And then Leo, he comes along, and uh, that's where power shift starts to starts to develop and continues to develop. Uh, I finally found the Chalcedonian Creed after looking for way too long. Um, let me find the beginning of a sentence because people used to carry on. Maybe I'll just read the whole thing. It says, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, 
So again, you can kind of see where they're fighting against Gnosticism and saying, no, there's only one. And he was uh, both soul and both body. Con concept con consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. So that's a, a big part of why they came together. Inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. So without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Those are our four guard posts. Uh, don't go beyond that or else you're leaving Christendom. You're leaving Christianity. If you're saying that he is, um, his humanity or his deity has changed or been divided or been uh, mixed in any way. The distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, subsistence rather, <clears throat> not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught and the creed of the Holy Fathers is handed down to us. So that's speaking of the Athanasian Creed, which again was given at 325. Uh, it was 381 where they started to introduce this idea of the Holy Spirit um, being sent forth by the Son as well. So the Nicene Creed says that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. The, um, the man, what is that council? 381. Um, it's not, it's another C word, I think. Um, man, it's drawing a blank. Uh, somebody look up what is a, the second church council, and maybe we'll know. But at that council in 381, they declared that the Holy Spirit proceeded forth from both the Father and the Son. And that becomes a big deal later on. All right, so at the Council of Chalcedon, they decided that Jesus had two natures, like we just read, but this fraction, this group up here, says Jesus had only one nature. So they're kind of buying into this Eutychian understanding of who Christ is. Um, and that would be, that would lead to the Middle East Church, or the Coptic Church. First Council of Constantinople. Thank you, Constantinople. All right, and then there's a second and a third council in like the eighth and ninth centuries or seventh and eighth. All right, and then looking here at 1054, um, that's when, um, let's see, that's when we have the, the Great Schism, um, where there's a split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Church, the Roman Empire Catholic Church. 1054 is the Great Schism. Um, Papal authority was a, a big deal. as uh, the Pope the head of the church or is Christ the head of the church? Because if you would ask any Catholic, they would say, oh yeah, the Pope is the head. Whereas if you would ask um, a bunch of others, especially as we get farther down into the, the Reformation, they would say, no, Christ is the head of the church. Philoque, uh, that's talking about whether or not the Holy Spirit was sent by 
the son and the father, and that kind of comes to a head there in 1054, even though it had been settled um, some 600 years before. Um, we see these further divisions here. Um, again, this is where we start to see more of the, the popes, the priests, uh, the Vatican, this whole uh, veneration of the saints, that kind of stuff, the big hats, right? Um, sacerdotal system, that's the priest rising up and uh, having this kind of hierarchy within the, the church leadership. That's a Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. All right. Uh, 1517 is the next big stamp we have on there. That's where uh, Luther comes on the scene. That's when he nails a 95 thesis to the door at the church, the church door in Wittenberg on uh, Halloween, October 31st, 1517. And that launches, well, not really launches. If you would have asked Luther, he would have said, oh, no, this has all been building up in this kind of the, the climax, right? Because he'd point back to other reformers that preceded him, um, John Huss and others. Um, but that's the date that we would give to the beginning of the Reformation. Uh, and then out of that flow, the, the five solas, um, that we have scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And that kind of becomes the, the marching orders for the, the Reformation and the, the church, um, as we can rightly call the church from that time on. And then 1536, uh, Henry VIII comes on the scene, uh, and he also kind of rebels against the, the Pope, and he wants to do his own thing. He wants to divorce his wife, um, and the Pope doesn't want to let him. And so he says, okay, well, I'm just going to kind of secede and do whatever I want. And then from that comes the Anglican Church. So that's kind of a messy history of the church and how we got here. Thoughts or questions on any of that? Why would you use the word Anglican? Is that different or the same as the Episcopalian? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it comes out of the, the England, the church in England. So I don't know. Ask Jeremy, who would know that? Oh, it's right there, Episcopalian. Um, I bet there is some kind of distinction there. I'm just not aware of what it is. Episcopalian is the American version of the Anglican Church. Okay. Cool, I did not know that. And uh, J.I. Packer was a Anglican slash Episcopalian. Um, some other. Zacharias um, was Anglican. Uh, What main guy? Michael Yusuf is Episcopal. Okay. Who's the main guy? I was thinking of, um, can't think of his name. Now he wrote all the, the books we like, to, or many of the books we like to read. Stott? Oh. I don't know who the main guy is. <laughs> the books, the Narnia. What's oh, yes, yes, Lewis. Yes, Lewis. yes, the main guy. <laughs> Yes. Well, he's, I think he's more commonly known than any of these other names. Yeah. J.I. Packer is the best one, though. <laughs> all right. And then down here we have Protestantism. So, yeah, those are all different branches of what was 
at one point recognized as a church. Much of them we wouldn't recognize as the church today, but it's kind of where we came from. All right, it says the heart of the Reformation was to break with tradition to get back to biblical Christianity. Um, again, that's, that's really what was going on there. So, um, so I mentioned that Leo kind of changed things, and he, from that point on, he became uh, much more powerful. Before that, it was, um, like I said, Constantine called the council together, so the council was kind of working in cahoots with the emperor, uh, and then the the pope called the council, and the council was working with the pope, and then later on down the road, uh, the councils started to be the the ones that the pope and the emperor were underneath. So after the the great schism, there was a, a papal schism where. At one point, there were three popes. So there was the pope in Rome, there was a pope in France, um, and then another group came together and they said, this is just a mess. We have two different popes at the same time. We need to do something about that. So they told both of them, you guys need to step down. Neither one of you are the pope. This third guy over here, he's a pope. And the first two didn't step down. So they had three popes, and they didn't really know what to do. And so they called another council together, and they said, all right, we have three popes at this point. Uh, this whole thing's a mess, and they told all three of those popes to step down, that none of them were authoritative, and they put in a fourth guy, and that time they actually listened to and submitted to the council, and that guy became the singular pope from that point on. So that was another big shift in how everything went down from that point. Uh, the Pope started to submit to the councils rather than the Pope being the one who called the councils and he would decide whether or not what they had to say was legitimate. So a whole shift of power throughout history from the emperor to the Pope to councils themselves. Alrighty. Uh, just because an institution labels itself as Christ a Christian church, that does not mean that it is a Christian church. Um, Hopefully that's pretty basic. Hopefully we know that and have accepted and embraced that, but uh, it's a, a big deal. And not just a, a Christian church, but individuals within the church too. Just because somebody calls themselves a Christian doesn't mean that they are a Christian. And we talked about this a little bit when we were going through um, the Holy Spirit and what it means to, to test somebody's fruit. Because um, I think it was when we were going through salvation that we will have fruit, right? And to some degree, we have to test people's fruit so we know how to, to handle them. I wouldn't be talking to you guys about any of this right now if I didn't think that you were, weren't Christians, right? We'd be going over the gospel again and again and again. Um, and the way that you counsel somebody really uh, it's dependent upon their, their position in Christ or out of Christ. And so we have to judge to some degree, but we have to be careful how far we take that. All right, um, this is from Wayne Grudem. It says, when there is an assembly of people who take the name Christian, but consistently teach that people cannot believe their Bibles, which is more and more common. Indeed, a church whose pastor and congregation seldom read their Bibles or pray in any meaningful way and do not believe or perhaps even understand the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone, then how can we say that this is a true church? 
right? That's pretty definitional to being a church, but he's kind of fleshing it out a little bit and saying, well, live like it then, right? If you're going to say that you're a, a biblical church, then why don't you teach the Bible? Why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you actually practice the things that a Christian practices? All right. Um, reforming religion, the second chart that you have there on your page. Uh, this will go down and uh, differentiate the two between what we understand as religion and reformation. It's often been said that religion is man trying to work our way towards God, whereas Christianity talks about God working his way towards man. Um, however, I think it's uh, James one twenty seven says that true and undefiled religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their time of need. So there is a a biblical distinction for a true and a undefiled religion. Because people have also said often, well, I'm not about religion, I'm about a relationship. And that's good and I can appreciate that sentiment. That's a, an understandable saying because we are about a relationship with God. But the Bible speaks about a, a true and undefiled religion. But there are many false um, askew religions as well. So worldly religion really focuses on tradition and we talked about that a little bit going throughout the, the Catholic Church. Again, the, the veneration of saints to, uh, to call them holy and to give them praise and adoration, um, to add all these different um, icons, yeah, icons. Yeah, all kinds of stuff that is added to uh, Scripture. Whereas the Reformation said, no, we're going to st stand on Scripture alone. Uh, religion puts their their faith again in priests and saints they will say that the pope is ahead whereas christians true biblical christians will say no christ is the head of the church and yes he has under shepherds but he is the the true shepherd religion will highlight sacraments and piety the roman catholic church has seven different sacraments that they hold to um, and they really value and they encourage people to, to strive towards. Um, but not everybody can hold all seven. Do you guys know that? Because one of them is to, uh, to be a priest. And then another one is to be married, but priests don't marry. So you can only ever achieve six out of the seven sacraments. So you can't be completely holy. Um, whereas the Reformation taught, no, we are about faith alone. That's how we achieve our, our holiness, our piety. It's, it's given to us, it's granted to us by faith. All right, religion focuses on judgment. And we've already talked about this morning, there is a place for judgment. There is a, a place for God's wrath. But um, we are saved by, by grace alone. Our salvation has been bought at the cross and paid for by him. There's no future judgment, no purgatory, no middle ground that we have to look forward to. It's been appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment, which will take place on the grounds of God's grace, or we will endure eternal punishment. All right, religion again has a, a hierarchy of men. That's that sacerdotal system where there are bishops and cardinals and priests, um, and then the Reformation talks about, no, it's all about God's glory. We're going to focus on him and everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we're going to bring glory to God. 
So religion teaches traditions, priests, saints, sacraments, piety, judgment, and hierarchy of men. The Reformation stands on scripture alone, Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone, and to the glory of God alone. Five solas. The five solas, yes sir. So basically we're saying that religion is all about man, man. Yep, very man-centered, man-focused. All right, the relationship that believers have with God is unique to true Christianity. That's, a, again, a simple statement, but it's big. Because uh, people want to claim, well, I can have a relationship with God. Right, that postmodern stuff we were talking about, Walker, that you can have your God, I can have my God. Well, no, there is one God, and he reveals himself through um, true Christianity. Um, not pseudo-Christianity, not a, a cult or another wayward movement. Because if they aren't, able to truly be defined as Christian, then um, they don't have that relationship with God. They have put their trust and their hope in a false God of their own understanding. We have these different pictures of um, this relationship. Um, yeah, we'll see if we can get through it. All right, the bridegroom and the bride um, and how we are in, in Christ, right? We have been bought with a price. He has called us his bride, and we have been united to him in, in a sense. So you go back to when Joseph and Mary, they got engaged, right? Or they were, um, they were to be married to one another. And he hadn't yet known her. He hadn't taken her as his wife fully. But he still, what was his plan to do with her when he found that she was with child? And he was planning to divorce her quietly. He still needed a, a certificate of divorce. Um, they were still recognized as being together, even though they hadn't consummated that marriage. And so that's kind of the stage that we are as, that we're in as a church. And we read about in Revelation 19, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and how we will um, consummate that, so to speak. And we will be truly united to him. Uh, once again, he is our head and we are the body. Um, he is the one that we need to look to, Ephesians 4. Not a pope, not a man. He is a father, and we are the children. We are adopted by him, uh, united to him. He is our master, and we are his slaves, right? Uh, the curios doulos relationship that we recognize that we need to submit ourselves to him. He is a shepherd. We are the sheep. Uh, we are in him, and he is in us, and he is in the father, back to John 17, that prayer that he had to the Father. He is a vine, and we are the branches. We draw our being, our, our strength, everything that we have from him. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. Um, that's John 15, talking about the vine and the branches. Uh, he is a presence, and we are the temple. We are uh, indwelt with him, and he actually lives within us just like he lived in uh the the temple in the old testament or like he was in the the burning bush in exodus he now dwells within us uh, he's the grower we're the plant he's a builder we're the building he is the the source and we are the the created he's a creature we're the creator or he's a creator we're the creature right uh we need to get that relationship right and recognize that and we see that uh, all throughout the scripture, and that's what was being reformed in 1517 and following.
Any other thoughts or questions on any of that? What is the in, in, in thing? Uh, John 17, I think, is the reference for that. That uh, Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Jesus, and uh, we are one even as they are one. Anything else? All right. Um, I'm going to break down that timeline just a little bit more here. So if we have the cross here, 33 AD, right? Uh, we can go the first 500 years. And um, I don't know. Yeah. All right. And then here we have the, the early church fathers up through that first 500 years. Um, the early church um, or the patristics. You might hear that referred to as the patristic age for that first 500 years. And it's not exactly 500, but that's kind of what we, we rounded up to. And then we go here, we have a thousand years up until 1500, which, like we said, that's when the, the Reformation started. So over here we have the Reformation, which started 1517 is the date that we put on it, but around there, um, where we have this Reformation period. And this thousand years in between, um, any ideas what we might call that? Dark. Medieval, dark ages. Yeah, it'd be the dark or uh, silent or medieval ages. Um, and number of different reasons for that. It's not uh, exclusively because we didn't hear a lot from them, but because they were um, yeah, dark and evil and lots of wickedness going on, the uh, corruption of power throughout 8th and 9th centuries, these popes just trying to, to win each other out for power. Uh, it got to the point where people were trying to buy their way into uh, being the Pope, because they realized that if they were the Pope, they'd be even over the Emperor. And so, uh, really, really dark ages in there. And then, wherever we are today, um, I don't know, I guess that kind of depends on your your eschatology, on your view of where we're at, whether or not we are uh, on the, the decline, if we are um, facing uh, a world of sorrow and trial and trouble, or we are going to progress, but if we're still in the Reformation or not, after this we had the um, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening in America, and we saw this time of uh, rationalism and modernism and postmodernism, uh, people putting more and more stock in themselves, um, yeah, all kinds of different movements within America after that fact. Um, you have the whole uh, Wesleyan movement and the the movement of, of piety trying to be more and more holy, which was good seemingly, but again, that kind of fell off the, the cliff into um, asceticism. So, yeah, it's kind lots of, of isms. A, lots of isms, yes, and well, lots of dates and stuff. Escalated, if you want to call it that, because it's man-driven, and man continues 
Jesus and thinking about what God is and what Christ is. Uh-huh. None of the parallels to the Bible at all. It's Nothing new under the sun, huh? All right, Andy? I'd just say that you look at this timeline for the Christian church and you see these things that, you know, like, like Jerry was saying, that, that center on man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's talking about the Council of Chalcedon and the Chalcedon Creed. It talks about Jesus coming from the mother of God, right? Uh-huh. Well, it wasn't that big of a step going from lowercase m to bigger case m and Marian dogmas creeping into the church. The, the point is, is that 99% of what the church is split over is, is addressed in scripture. It's yeah. there if you read it in the context in which it's written. And I would say that today, the church that's splitting right now over critical race theory and all the social justice warrior things, it's very clear in scripture that we are not the, we are, well, let me phrase that. If you're holding to that and it's a, a philosophy of man, if you're not holding to that, and the way that the Bible teaches you know, race, race is like beyond tertiary in, in scripture. It's not, it's not even there. It just says like, you know, the Ethiopians are swarthy, whatever, right? And when they came out with that, that statement, the mother of God, that was meant to draw out clarification. Uh, theotokos is theotakos, <laughs> tacos, right? Uh, takos. <laughs> um, <Sorry>. Yeah. <laughs> um, calling Mary the mother of God, that was in... Uh, response to people calling Mary the the mother of a man, Anthropotakos, or the mother of Christ. They're trying to figure out what's the best word to describe who who Christ is and Mary's relationship to him. And so in choosing the mother of God, it wasn't an elevation of Mary, but a realization of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is God. I'm wanting to draw that out. But as man came, on, came along and perverted that, it did become a uh, glorification of Mary rather than of Christ. So we'll pick up here next week. Um, Yeah. Go enjoy yourselves.